was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway or new on Backstage Babble. Hi, I'm Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I'm honored to be joined today by our guest, Ken Cantor. Ken is a Broadway actor who's appeared in the Grand Tour, Mame, Me and My Girl, and had an impressive nine-year run in The Phantom of the Opera. He has also appeared many times at the Paper Mill Playhouse, done the national tour of Anything Goes, had an off-Broadway run in The Fantastics, where the writers of the show called him the best El Gallo and Philemon. Ken, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you ever saw? The first show I ever saw was My Fair Lady with Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison. And we were sitting up in the balcony at the old um, Mark Hellinger Theater. And um, in those days, at, on the back of the seat in front of you um, was a little box that you would put a quarter in. And when you put the quarter in the box, the top of the box would flip open. And in the box would be two chocolates and a pair of opera glasses. And so my brother and I, who went to see the show, shared the opera glasses and split the chocolates. And I'm embarrassed to say that I spent the bulk of my time watching that production, looking at all of the spike marks on the stage as to where they put all of the scenery. You know, they have little tape marks. And uh, for some reason, uh, those fascinated me far more than the, than the performances. I was much more interested in the, tech, the technical side of the show, the uh, triple turntables and um, uh, how, they, how they maneuvered all of the scene changes than I was in actually what was happening on stage. But that was, that was my first. But I grew up in the Bronx, and we didn't go to the theater very, very much. Um, other than um, Music Man, other than My Fair Lady, we saw The Music Man, which at that point was starring Burt Parks. And the main memory I have of that, which was at the Majestic, where I was going to wind up spending a great deal of time, um, the main thing that I remember from that was that Burt Parks sweat an awful lot, and his hand, he kept pulling his handkerchief out to mop off his sweat. And at the end of the show, after the audience had cleared, I guess I was insistent that we stay and listen to the exit music. At the very end of the show, they brought the curtain back up and there was some sort of a party on stage. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Um, but again, don't really remember too much of the show. Other than those two shows, we saw Fiorello in its original production. And then that was it until I was in high school. And uh, when I was in high school, finally, my parents felt that it was safe for me to go into the city by myself. And that's when I really started going to the theater and saw a great deal of theater. And was there a particular show or performance or moment in a show that made you realize that you wanted to be an actor? No, that's, that's it, 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 not in the theater. Um, the show that had the deepest impact on me was a show that um, impacted a lot of children. At, at the time that it was on, um, in 1955, so I was uh, six, 
um, Peter Pan was on television with Mary Martin and Cyril Richard. And it was essentially the Broadway company. Um, they closed the Broadway show and took it into a TV studio in Brooklyn and they broadcast it live with the original cast. And I was deeply affected by seeing that. Um, uh, not so much Mary Martin as Cyril Richard. And I just thought that it, he was very funny, was what I remember. But apparently the next day when I went into school, I insisted that Mary Martin was my mother and Cyril Richard was my father. And so it made quite an impact on me. And then they, they couldn't rerun it because it was broadcast live. So they did a uh, subsequent broadcast about a year later, maybe a little less than a year later, and um, saw that one as well. And it was Peter Pan that really cemented my love of doing of, of musicals. It was my first cast album and um, of the possibility of actually performing in the theater. And it was an enormous thrill for me many years later at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, I did Captain Hook. And I did it uh, two years in a row, and I played it a number of times since then. And um, I was very much aware, as I am now, that Peter Pan is what they call a gateway musical. It's a musical that people see when they're very young, and it's the gateway to loving other theater or wanting to perform in the theater. And uh, so performing Captain Hook and Peter Pan is the, the most thrilling thing I've ever done. And I always enjoyed doing it. And um, they asked me to come out at the beginning to give a little curtain speech um, just to welcome the families to the theater. And um, unbeknownst to anybody but myself and maybe some real hardcore people, basically my curtain speech became what Mary Martin used to say at her curtain speech at the end of the broadcasts. And uh, it gave me a tremendous sense of uh, life coming in a circle. And I really enjoyed playing it. And I even, I even have my own hook because <laughs> a number of years after that, I did it, I started doing it at stock theaters and things like that. And uh, the biggest problem was getting a hook that would work because wardrobe says it's props and props says it's wardrobe and nobody really wants to build it. And so um, I contacted Alabama Shakespeare Festival and they made a hook for me and I still have it. So I'm sort of like an actor, have hook, will travel. Speaking of coming full circle, did you ever get to work later in your career with any of those early acting influences? Well, I did have a moment with Mary Martin, I must say. Um, after I got out of college, I was uh, recommended by the voice teacher at school to take voice from with her teacher here in, this, in New York City. And I studied with him. His name was Dolph Swing. That was his name. And I was just starting to study with him. And I was still teaching. I was teaching um, elementary school and junior high school in um, the Bronx, where my parents lived and where I was still living. And um, I went for my voice lesson and then would come back to the Bronx and have dinner. And I got to my voice lesson. And this one time, my voice teacher would not allow me up to his studio which was a very impressive place. He had a duplex just off Lincoln Center and it was a magnificent old studio, stained glass windows, it was really something. And he had a pair of pocket doors that would separate, the elevator stopped on his floor in his apartment. 
and he had a pair of pocket doors that would swing open and you would go in for your study, for your class and then you go through the pocket doors and go back into the elevator go down and i arrived that day and um he held me down in the uh, lobby wouldn't let me come up and that was very odd and time was marching on and all i could think was i need to get back up to the bronx and go for dinner and finally he sent word down that i could show up come up in the elevator i came up in the elevator i opened the pocket doors and mary martin was in there she was a student of his uh he i don't think he was her first teacher but he was her final teacher and um we chatted for a little while. I was about to see a benefit that she was doing for the library um, to celebrate, um, I think it was Josh Logan. And uh, I had tickets for it. And I, I told her that I had tickets for it. And we chatted for a little while. And uh, then the pocket doors closed and I went in for my lesson. And at that time I was trying to be a bass, a serious bass. And my teacher wanted me to go into opera. And so he had me doing stuff that Itzio Pinza would normally sing. And he said, uh, just as an inspiration, why don't you sing uh, This Nearly Was Mine, which was a song I had been working on. I started to sing it. And as I was singing it, the pocket doors opened and Mary Martin walked in and she sat herself down in a chair and I finished singing it. And he said, how about Some Enchanted Evening? And so I sang Some Enchanted Evening, which was another song I'd been working on. And uh, Mary Martin said some very, very nice things and said, uh, would you like to sing Twin Soliloquies with me? Well, of, of course. And so I sang twin soliloquies with her and she enjoyed it very much. The doorbell rang. Richard, her, hus her husband, was there with the car and she flew, flew. She didn't actually flew, but it seemed like she flew out of the room. And I was on cloud nine and finished my lesson, uh, took the subway up to the Bronx and arrived and my parents had already started eating. And when my, when my father ate, it was like competitive eating. He really went at it. And uh, I walked in and all he could say was, you're late. And I said, yes, I know, but you won't believe what just happened. And I said, you're late. And I said, yes, I know. But I just sang with Mary Martin. And without missing a beat from his eating, he said, is she gonna get you a job? <laughs> that was the end of my touch with Mary Martin. I would have loved to have worked with Cyril Richard. I never had that opportunity, but I did work with Christopher Hewitt, who apparently was a very good friend of Cyril Richard's. And we did New Moon at Paper Mill. And um, he had just finished playing in Peter Pan on Broadway with uh, Sandy Duncan. He had replaced George Rose, whose performance I did not admire. And um, during one of those breaks and rehearsals, I was chatting with somebody. And uh, as Chris walked by, he heard me say, yeah, I saw Peter Pan. Oh, the hook was just all wrong. He just, I really didn't think that he captured it. And Chris, of course, thought I was talking about him. And uh, <laughs> he made it very clear that he was taking umbrage with my opinions. And I explained to him it was George Rose. And he said, oh, you probably enjoyed Cyril much more. And then he did a spectacular impression of Cyril Richard. And every time we were on stage under his breath, he would do that Cyril Richard giggle that he would do, you know, the <laughs> and um, he, he really made my life very difficult <laughs> after that in a very charming way. Chris was a very, very sweet man. And uh, success came to him, national success, came to him very, very late 
uh, he replaced Ricardo Montalban on um, Fantasy Island. And I understand that all the time he was working on Fantasy Island, he would call up all of his old friends to be on the show with him. He was a very, very dear man. I enjoyed him enormously. And he had a, oh, obviously a very wicked sense of humor. So let's talk about doing The New Moon. That was a show that you did both at Paper Mill and at City Opera later. How do you think it changed between? Well, actually, the first time I did it, we did it at Darien Dinner Theater. Uh, Paper Mill had endured a fire and it was closed. And so all of the people that normally worked at Paper Mill started working at Darien Dinner Theater. So the first production of it, I did there. And the director had contacted me before rehearsals began and asked if I wanted to do it. I had just done New Moon. It's amazing how often I did that show. Um, I had just done New Moon in a really simplified summer theater. And I didn't think it was much of a show. It has beautiful score, but I thought the script was just impossible. And I told the director that, and he said, no, 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 we're working on a new script. Why don't you try it? So I did it at Darien Dinner Theater. And indeed, it was a new script with all of the old songs, which were terrific. I mean, New Moon has a spectacular score. And um, from there, it moved to Paper Mill. Once Paper Mill opened, they recreated the production we had done at Darien Dinner Theater. And so we performed it at uh, Paper Mill. And while we were at Paper Mill, Beverly Sills, who was then the operating director of New York City Opera, came. And she wanted to move it to City Opera. And I had to audition for City Opera on, on the stage of the State Theater, which was um, quite a challenge. It's a very big auditorium. And I wound up doing it there as well. And that's where I made my, uh, city, my New York City Opera debut, was doing New Moon. And... Um, of all of those productions, I think the best one was Darien Dinner Theater. It was intimate and it was beautiful and it was delicate and it was well sung. It was a beautiful production. But so we sort of, it was, we sort of wandered through various theaters in the New York area doing New Moon. Um, but it's unusual for an obscure operetta, which New Moon unfortunately now is, that I would wind up doing four different productions of it. And then we wound up doing a TV broadcast of it as well. While we were at Wolf Trap, uh, the City Opera production was um, put on great, great performances. And I was in that as well. So, so now, I wound up getting, I got a lot of mileage out of New Moon. So now let's go back in time to when you started your career. Mm -hmm. Tell us about one of the first jobs you almost got was doing Jacques Brel in the Boston tryout. Tell oh, that's us, very true. Tell us why that didn't end up happening. Yeah, I was a graduate student at Boston University, and they had a policy of not allowing you to do outside productions. The graduate students that were at Boston University were there primarily to service the um, productions of Boston University. We were essentially supposed to be the character men, while the younger students who were undergraduates were playing the other roles. And so they were very protective of us and they would not allow us to do outside productions. And uh, it was my first year at Boston University. I didn't know that I was not allowed to do it. So I auditioned for it, got it. Um, then someone said, oh, you better clear that with the chairman of the department. So I went into the chairman of the department's office and he said, oh no, you're not. Um, I was very frustrated because I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do acting as well as musicals. And they didn't do many at Boston University. And I said, please, I really would enjoy doing it. He said, listen, 
first learn how to act. And so that was, that was the end of my opportunity to do Jacques Brel. <laughs> your first Broadway show that you did was the Grand Tour. What was your audition sort of process like for that? Uh, I was doing the National of Shenandoah at the time uh, with John Raitt. And we had opened with John Cullum, and then Cullum went off to do on the 20th century. And so uh, John Raitt came in. And during a, a holiday hiatus, I believe, um, they had an open call for this new Jerry Herman show, The Grand Tour. And I went in an audition, and I think I was number, I don't know, 370 or something. And uh, it was on the stage of the uh, L'Enfantin Theater. And um, I probably sang If Ever I Would Leave You, which was usually my go-to song because it was easy to sing. And it was in a very congenial key. And um, I don't even think that I was called back. They just gave it to me. And I was very surprised that I had gotten a Broadway show with such ease until I arrived at the first rehearsal and they had the uh, costume sketches up on the wall. And I looked at the costume sketches for my part and they were looking for me. The guy looked exactly like me. So I walked in and I, I really sort of aced the, aced the, um, the audition uh, without really too much sweat. Um, there have been other shows that have had more difficult audition processes, but uh, the Grand Tour actually turned out to be a relatively easy one. And um, in subsequent years, I went up to the library at Lincoln Center in the research section. They have all of Michael Stewart's notes, and Michael Stewart wrote the book to Grand Tour. And I knew that he, he, he enjoyed my work. I knew that he liked me. But I was curious to read his notes, his audition notes. And uh, there were the notes. And I had that show from the moment I walked into the room. It's uh, <laughs> Actors are usually kept in the dark as to uh, their likelihood of getting a show or not. But as it turned out, Grand Tour was probably one of the easier yeah. shows for me to get. There were a lot of theater luminaries involved in the Grand Tour. Did you have very high expectations for it? Yes, yes. Um, before we started rehearsing, uh, we were all invited up to Jerry Herman's penthouse, which was at the Century Theater, the Century, pardon me, the Century Building on Central Park West, which I believe was where the Century Theater used to be. And that's why they call it the Century Apartments. But he had the rooftop, which had a 360 degree view of the city. On one end, you could see Lincoln Center, on the other end, Central Park, and on another end, you could look at the Empire State Building, and the other end, you saw the George Washington Bridge. It was a spectacular place. Duplex, obviously. And um, they performed the backers audition for the grand tour for the cast that was coming in. And the first indication that I thought it was going to be a very pleasant experience was they greeted us at the door and then Jerry Herman had already learned everybody's names. And um, he, he was very, very friendly. It was a very warm experience and they performed the score. And I thought it was the most beautiful score I had ever heard. I think I was a little drunk on the idea of doing my, uh, my first Broadway show. And when you're involved in a Broadway show, you really have no idea as to how well it's going or how badly it's going. And I just thought it was the most beautiful score I'd ever heard. Uh, the song, Mary Ann, I was quite right about. It's a beautiful song, but I likened it to something like Some Enchanted Evening. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And um, that was a very memorable experience with the Grand Tour, a very heady experience, particularly for somebody who had never done a Broadway show before. 
And um, as I said, Michael Stewart was very, very friendly and very, very helpful. He even wrote a little part for me as the, as the um, rehearsals went on. And um, Jerry Herman, I think, was greatly frustrated by what was happening with the show. And one day before rehearsals, he just sat down at the piano and started noodling at the piano. And he was playing songs from Dear World, which had, I think was his most recent show prior to Grand Tour. And um, I wandered over and commented on the song and he was amazed that I had seen it. And uh, we established a nice relationship there. Uh, Florence Lacey was the leading lady in the show and she was a dream. Uh, so talented and so kind and so patient and so understanding and so much a member of the company. It was really quite thrilling. Um, Grand Tour felt, got into a lot of trouble with uh, Joel Gray as the star. I don't think that he felt the role was quite strong enough for him. And uh, as a result, while we, we tr it was the first and only, I shouldn't say the only, but the first show that really went out of town and tried out with new material going in and out, we went to San Francisco. And while we were in San Francisco, Joel apparently felt that uh, the part needed help and they brought in Tommy Toon. And Tommy Toon tweaked a lot of the choreography and a lot of the direction. But I recall him saying at one point that uh, the only way he felt that the show could really be completely salvaged was to close it down, rewrite it, recast it, and go back into rehearsal and go back on the road. So all he did was sort of a patchwork job on the show. Um, I still held out hopes that the show was going to be successful, but unfortunately at that time, Sweeney Todd opened while we were doing Grand Tour, and it pointed the way to such exciting musical theater that Grand Tour was, was just a really nice show, uh, really didn't, didn't stand much of a chance in the, in the commercial field um, on Broadway. And so unfortunately we didn't run terribly long, but it really was a very heady and exciting experience. And um, on opening night of the Grand Tour, um, I was sent a telegram, a singing telegram, um, to wish me, you know, good luck with the show. And it was very clever. It was very funny. The lyrics were very funny. And it was delivered by a man, kind of short guy. Uh, it was raining that night. And his, his tuxedo was made out of sateen material and the dye was running because it was raining. And he was performing. And while he was performing, he was very funny. And while he was performing, I asked what his name was. And it turned out it was Nathan Lane. And he, he performed my opening night singing telegram for the grand tour. And uh, I never mentioned it to him because I'm sure it was not a job that he was too thrilled that he ever had to do. But it was most assuredly Nathan. I, I knew him uh, from uh, that summer theater that I did that first production of New Moon at. He was there the following year and stayed with the family that I had stayed with the previous summer. So we sort of knew each other, but never had actually met. And I never really had the courage to point it out to him. And I was, certainly have worked with Nathan since then. We did two shows together. So after the Grand Tour, you worked on Brigadoon, but after that, you worked with Jerry Herman again on a revival yeah. name, still with Angela Lansbury, but other than that, with a different cast? No, actually, the cast was almost identical to the opening night cast, with the exception of B. Arthur. 
uh, we had Anne Francine who replaced B. Arthur in the original production, but we had Saab Shimono, we had Willard Waterman, we had uh, Jane Cannell, um, uh, John Becker. Uh, we had pretty much the original cast um, many years later. And uh, like Willard looked very frail and it did not help. Um, but prior to getting um, Mame, I had been offered another Jerry Herman show at the same time. And I had my choice of which two I would rather do. And Jerry's fortunes at that point had reached a rather low ebb. Um, I think even he would say that he was contemplating uh, not writing anymore. And so he wrote one more show. And I had the choice of Mame, which was scheduled to do a year and a half national tour before we came to New York, or trying my luck with a new Jerry Herman show. And I went with the safe choice. I went with Mame. And don't regret it for a minute. It was an ex exciting experience. But the show I turned down was La Caja Fall. <laughs> Very hard to make a good decision. Yeah. I know you have a great story, though, about opening night of Maine, about how excited the audience was and how many curtain calls. It was those of us who were there will never forget it. Um, it was, um, it, it, I. I'm not sure whether that was opening night or whether it was shortly before or after. It's I'm a little hazy. It was a matinee, that much I remember. And um, the overture started. It's a very exciting overture. And uh, we were using the original orchestrations, which had not been used since the Broadway show had closed. They used the simplified orchestrations that they used on the tours of Maine. So we were using the original orchestrations for the first time and the audience went crazy. When the overture started, the audience went mad. And then every new song was applauded in the overture, but not the songs, the transitions into the songs. We're getting, we're getting these enormous hands. Angela came out for, um, at the top of the stairs for the beginning of It's Today, and the ovation went on and on and on. It was incredible. And the whole show carried that level of excitement. And at the end of the show, we finished taking our curtain call, which was a very protracted affair, very, very elegant. And we finished our curtain call, and the curtain had come down, the house lights went up, and uh, the orchestra was playing the exit music, and the cheering didn't stop. It continued to go, and it continued to go all the way through the exit music. And I happened to be near Angela's dressing room at the time. It was at the Gershwin Theater, and her dressing room was just off the stage. You had to go past it in order to go down to the other dressing rooms. And Angela stopped, surprised that the audience was still applauding. And she went over to the edge of the stage. At this point, the show drop had come in. There was a very short apron, the space between the, the, uh, the uh, show drape and the edge of the stage where the orchestra pit begins. It was maybe about three feet, three and a half feet, something like that. And she peeked out and saw that the audience was still going crazy. The exit music finished and they were still applauding. And she said, I don't know what to do. And there were a couple of us that were near her. And I recall saying, you've got to go out and take another bow. They're, not, they're never going to leave the theater. And she said, well, I can't go out there by myself. 
she had a very full dress on, and she, I think a certain element of modesty prevented her from doing it. There was no way they could bring the show drop up because the crew had already disbanded. And so I thought, well, I'm never going to see an ovation like that again. So I went out there with her, along with two or three other people. And what greeted us was something I've never seen in the theater. People were screaming and yelling and standing on the arms of the seats in the auditorium, cheering. They were insane. And we had that level of enthusiasm in just about every performance that we did on Broadway. But due to a lot of financial shenanigans, um, our producer decided that he would rather have the tax write-off than continue to run the show. Um, we opened in the middle of the summer to continue to run the show until uh, the fall when audiences would come back and we would actually run. And so with those, that kind of enthusiasm and with those kind of audiences, we closed. And we were told that they would try to put together a tour the quote that we had heard was with a nationally recognized star who can sell tickets. Angela, I mean, really. So uh, when the show closed, she was heartbroken and she went back to California and uh, did murder, she wrote, and became a nationally recognized star. And no one deserved it more than she did. No one worked harder than Angela did. And no one was the head of a production with more enthusiasm and caring for their cast members as, as Angela was. She, the experience of having worked with her was worth missing out on so many years of work from Lacage. I was thrilled and, and remain thrilled to be able to say that I worked with her. Well, on that show and on your previous shows, you got to do the opening night, but the next show you did on Broadway was as a replacement in Me and My Girl. How did yes. you audition for that, and how much time did you have to prepare? You... Well, I had auditioned for it, and um, I had lost a lot of weight. And I was not the actor that they thought that I was when I came in. And so they said, you'll have to be patient. You're on our list. You're going to go into the show, but you'll have to be patient. And I think about two or three months later, uh, they lost someone who I could go into the show for. And um, when you're a replacement, you get very little rehearsal. You get less than seven days. You get something like six days worth of rehearsal. And it's a pretty complicated show. And unfortunately, there was a lot of dance involved in it, which is not one of my specialties. And um, it was a very nerve-wracking experience going into that show. And when you go in as a replacement, your first concern is that you're going to get in everybody's way and you're going to ruin the show. And your second one is that you're never going to be able to do the material, that you didn't really learn it properly. And I remember as the curtain was going up on the opening number, which I was in, and it was the most terrified I think I've ever been. And as the curtain went up without realizing it, I yelled out, <laughs> a very dirty expression, <laughs> and uh, managed to get through the show. And the dance captain was very, very generous. He said, I won't give you any notes for at least a week. I'll let you figure out what you're doing. And by the end of the week, I could take the notes and I knew where I was and all the rest of that. But it was uh, going in as a replacement is a very, very nerve wracking experience because you never really feel, I love to rehearse 
and you never really feel that you're as completely prepared as you would like to be. And um, stage fright, what people refer to as stage fright, really isn't stage fright. It's the feeling in your, the pit of your stomach that you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. And that's what makes you frightened. And if you're properly prepared, if you're properly rehearsed and you've done all of your homework, you should be able to get past the stage fright. You're never completely relaxed when you're on stage, but you should be able to get over that terror. And the terror usually comes from being really, really um, frightened that you just don't know what it is you're performing. Me and My Girl was one of the first, if not the first show at the new Marquee Theater. And I know you have a story about a certain smell on stage that you <laughs> from the came. Yes, when they built the Marquee Theater, uh, they made several mistakes. Uh, the temperature at the backstage couldn't be controlled. And it was during the winter is when I went in and it was freezing backstage. I, I don't mean it was cold. I mean, it was freezing. And I don't mean in the dressing rooms. I mean, on stage, because the wall at the back of the theater was the other side of the wall was outside and it was just they had thermometers everywhere backstage to monitor the temperatures but at the end of the show we had a rather elegant um fox hunt ball as i recall and uh, we were dancing at the ball and they put me with justine johnson who you may know for as the woman who sang one more kiss in follies a very stately impressive woman and very dignified and really quite a, del quite a delight once, once she trusted you. She was really quite lovely on stage. But we were dancing and she was dressed up with a tiara on and we're dancing and I smelled something really bad. I couldn't quite place what it was. And every night when it came time to do that dance, I'd be dancing with her. I mean, we'd be locked in a, in a you know, I was, I was leading her dance. And that awful smell, and finally I realized what it was, and it smelled like excrement. There was simply no other way to describe it. And I thought, oh my God, this poor woman has soiled herself. And no one has had the courage to tell her that she's gone in her costume, and the costume smelled to high heaven. And this went on, oh, I, I tolerated it, I guess, for about a week or so before I mentioned it to anybody. And they nodded very sagely, the people who had been with the show from the beginning, and said, oh no, it's not Justine. I said, what is it then? Apparently when they built the marquee, the air, um, the fresh air that would come in from outside, that would be pumped in from outside, where that intake was located was right next to the pipes that emptied the raw sewage from the hotel and during the cold weather the sewage would freeze back up and the smell would come through the ventilating system it was <laughs> awful <laughs> so after this show you moved off broadway for a little bit to do philemon but before that you had a short run as el gallo in the fantastics where the authors said that you were the best one that they'd ever seen <laughs> What do you think you did with the part to make them say that? Well, first of all, you got your chronology a little bit wrong. Um, I auditioned for Philemon, which was being done at the York Theater. And I guess Tom, and Harvey, Tom, Schmidt, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt took some sort of a liking to me. And 
while we were performing it, it's a very challenging score. I think it's a beautiful score, but a lot of people really dislike it, but I think it's just gorgeous, a wonderful show. And um, while I was doing it, Tom said, we have another project we'd like you to do, um, Colette Collage, which were the remnants of the Broadway production of Colette that they tried doing a number of years before starring Diana Rigg. And that was also going to be done at the York, but there, was, uh, there were several months in between. And to hold me so that I could do that, they decided to put me into the Fantastics down at Sullivan Street. And so I went into Fantastics again as a replacement, again with six days of rehearsal. Um, but everybody that went into the Fantastics was a replacement because, I mean, the show opened in 1960 and we're talking now about, oh, I didn't know what the year was, but I think we were in the 1980s, certainly. Um, possibly even the 1990s, I'm not sure. And um, so they, want, they wanted to hold on to me. So they put me down in Sullivan Street doing El Gallo. And uh, Harvey Schmidt uh, was living in Tumble, Texas at the time. He would come up to New York on occasion. He came up to see Philemon, and he was going to be up to see um, Colette Collage as we went into rehearsal. And uh, he was the one who said that he liked the way I sang the role better than anybody he'd ever heard. It was, I have a very dark voice, and he liked that kind of dark voice. Uh, the interesting thing that happened to me while I was at Sullivan Street doing the show because I was only there for about four or five months before Colette Collage began. And the interesting thing was at one performance, because of some, uh, an accident that our pianist had, you know, it's just piano, harp, piano and harp um, down at Sullivan Street. Uh, she couldn't play the second show that night. And they called their usual subs to play the show and none of them were available. And so it fell to Harvey to play the show. And it's the only time he ever played the piano for the Fantastics down at Sullivan Street. And it was a very exciting experience having the composer playing the show because he doesn't read music. He plays by ear and uh, he has a magnificent ear and he plays the piano like nobody plays the piano and very big, heavy hands. And um, it was very jazzy when he played it, very, very funky sounding. And it was a very different flavor. And uh, I'm pleased that I had the foresight to contact a friend who was able to race down to Sullivan Street with a tape recorder, and he was able to record that performance. And uh, it was quite a memorable night. And, um, but uh, Harvey and Tom and I um, got on very, very well. I've done a number of their shows. In addition to those three, I did readings of two other shows that they had written. Um, and um, once they have people that they like to work with, they work with them again and again and again. Uh, it's interesting to note that Tom and Harvey actually were the people who invented the idea of doing a, a um, workshop shows. It was before Chorus Line. When they were originally writing Philemon, they had formed their own theater, the Portfolio Theater, and it was a workshop theater. And Philemon, among several other shows, were performed there while they were working on them. And they were really the ones to invent um, the, um, the workshop method of putting a show together. But because the shows that they wrote were not of the same high uh, notoriety as a chorus line, a chorus line is usually credited with it, but quite honestly, it really was Tom and Harvey. So now let's go back to Philemon, which I got the order wrong. That was, as you mentioned, a very polarizing show. What was it like to sort of be in a show that 
rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. It was crazy. I loved it. I thought not only was the show terrific, but I thought that my work in the show was really wonderful. And I couldn't wait for people to see it. I, I was so excited about it. And I invited an, uh, a handful of my theater friends to see it. And they all had exactly the same reaction. I hated it. I resent the fact that you made me come and see this. And I'm not altogether sure I'd ever come to see you perform in anything else again. And the sad thing about it is they videotaped it for uh, Lincoln Center. And I went to take a look at the videotape and sad to say they were quite right about my performance. It was way over the top. It really wasn't awfully good. But you know, when you're, it's like I said with Grand Tour, when you're in a show, you don't really know, is it good or is it bad? Because you become so enamored of the excitement of doing the show that you sort of uh, lose your perspective. And certainly that's what happened with Philemon. But I still insist it's a score I love. It's probably the most complex score that Tom and Harvey ever wrote. It's got some gorgeous material in it. I, I, I think it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful show. But you have to be in the right mood for it because um, essentially what they were doing was making a musicalization of the death camps in World War II. And they were using uh, Rome as a um, metaphor. But it's no, there's no question they were writing about Auschwitz. And so it's not, not a laugh riot. Well, your next Broadway credit after that was Guys and Dolls. And that was almost the reverse of Philemon, which was that you didn't know how much of a hit it was going to be. And it turned out to be a really long run. So were you surprised by that? Surprised, shocked, delighted, amazed. It was, I thought that basically what it was, was a really good stock production of Guys and Dolls with, with good scenery and all the rest of that. But I didn't think uh, the, the show was, the, the production itself was really all that special. And we certainly had our problems when we were putting the show together. But by the time we opened, the audience reaction had so completely changed from our first preview to the opening night that it became quite apparent that something very unusual had happened. And then on opening night, our opening night review from the Times was on the front page. New York took that production of Guys and Dolls under its wing. And I think their reaction was possibly in excess of the quality of the show that we were presenting. But I had been in so many shows that I thought were really worthy that had failed for one reason or another that I decided that I was going to ride Guys and Dolls straight into the barn. And I stayed with it the entire run. I left twice to do other shows on a leave of absence and they would let me come back. And um, I stayed with it from the opening night to the closing night. So tell us about there, almost- There were a handful of us that stayed all that time. And I'm, I'm sorry. So tell us about, I was going to say, right before you opened, or soon before you opened, you had a leading lady shake-up. That was very strange. Carolyn Menini was playing the lead. She was playing Sarah. And I thought she was wonderful. She was delicate and beautiful, and she sang it gorgeously. And there was obviously something lacking that the cast couldn't see, because none of us knew. And then we showed up, I don't think it was more than maybe a week or a week and a half before we opened. 
and um, her understudy was going to take over the part, Josie de Guzman. And it was a shock to all of us. It was particularly a shock to Jerry, Jerry Zachs, who directed it, who uh, had appeared with Carolyn in uh, Tintypes. They had performed together. And um, I think it really hurt him to have to make that decision. I'm not altogether sure it was even totally his decision. And it was very sad and very disruptive. And there's no denying that with Carolyn playing Sarah, that the audience reaction to the show perked up and it became the sensation that it, it was by opening night. I don't know whether it was necessarily because um, Josie had taken over the part, but um, everybody that was in the show was absolutely shocked. And it was done so abruptly at the time, uh, Al Hirschfeld used to do caricatures for the opening night of the Sunday, the Sunday section of the Times on the opening night. And he had drawn Carolyn. And they contacted him and said, is it too late? Can you change the face? And he said, I was just sending it off to the Times. Get me a Polaroid of the new Sarah Brown, full face and profile. And he erased the other face and put um, and put um, Josie de Guzman's face on there. And uh, it was done that suddenly and that abruptly. And the day that Jerry told us that there was a cast replacement, essentially he said, I don't want to discuss this with anyone. This is the decision we've made, so we need to rehearse. And that was it. And it was never mentioned to Jerry or any of the powers that be again. But it would seem that the cast replacement had some sort of an impact on the success of the show, but we'll never really know for sure. Certainly those of us who were in the show could, could not understand it. Without breaking any confidences or anything, if Jerry was a friend of hers, or maybe even an admirer of her work, who do you think it might have been that made the decision? Um, from what we understand, it was a decision that came down from uh, Joe Sullivan, who was Frank Lesser's uh, widow. And um, apparently after she f saw the show mounted on stage for a certain period of time, she came in with several, I don't know whether you can call them suggestions, but she made it rather clear that there were certain improvements that needed to be made in the show. And since she controlled the rights, she really had a lot of sway with regard to that. And I believe it was, um, it was her choice or certainly her decision weighed heavily on making that choice. The next show you did was another revival, this time of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And this time you did not have a regular part in the show, but you were an understudy. And even though you went on a lot, were you at the theater even when you didn't have to go on? Oh, yes. Um, forum ran, I think we ran two years. I'm not quite sure, but we ran a significant length of time. And um, we all needed to be at the theater because it's a very physical show. And it was, uh, we don't call ourselves understudies in that show. We called ourselves standbys because we weren't in the show, but we were ready to go on at a moment's notice. And um, in those days, we didn't have cell phones, but we did have beepers that would contact you, you know, with, with a text message. And 
some, at some point into the run, once they were certain that all of the, the, uh, the standbys knew their roles intimately, we were allowed to wander from the theater, but we had to stay in the theater district with our beepers. Uh, and so we could go to see other shows. Um, I spent a lot of time at, um, what was that? It was a record store, HMV, I think, in Times Square. I spent a lot of time there, uh, just killing time. But um, there's a limit to how much time you can actually spend in the theater without going a little crazy. I became very obsessed with watching the show because I was concerned that if I had to go on, I wanted to make as few ripples in the show as possible. And I didn't want to disrupt anything with regard to the show. And so the show changed a great deal from night to night to night in subtle ways, but changed. And I felt that I needed to be aware of what, how the show was morphing around in case I had to go on. And so I watched the show many, 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 many times, far more than I probably should have. I was the last one to go on Beeper and probably the most reluctant person to be on Beeper. But uh, they had a room for us at the top of the theater. It was one of the dressing rooms. There were two dressing rooms up there. One of them was um, the guy, Jim Stanek, wonderful guy who played Hero. And he had a pet ferret that he liked to have at the theater. And nobody wanted the ferret on their floor when in the dressing rooms. So they gave Jim a room all the way at the top of the theater where he could have his ferret. And we had the other room up there. And eventually, they put a TV monitor up there so we could watch the show. And we had an intercom so that they could reach us in case they needed to. And eventually, we convinced them to put a television set up there so we could watch TV. And once a week, we would have uh, health and beauty night in the swing room. Um, the women would do their nails or whatever, and I would uh, dye my mustache so that it would go with the wig that I had to wear when I went on for meals. <laughs> and uh, we would do that once a week. We got some exercise equipment up there. Um, we were a happy little group up there. We were um, very, very, very talented people who were just waiting for the opportunity to go on. Your story about the ferret reminded me something I forgot to ask you about Guys and Dolls, which is that, which is to tell us about some of the jokes that cast members would play on each other. <laughs> yeah, the Guys and Dolls company was, was naughty in its way. Uh, the most involved, well, there was one, uh, after the show, I put my sneakers on to go home, and um, I was being driven home by one of the cast members. And um, while I was in the car, I felt a kind of gooey mess between my toes, and I couldn't quite figure out what that was. And when I got home, I took my sneakers off to take a look, and someone had put powdered clothing dye at the bottom of my socks, blue. And so my feet turned blue for about two and a half weeks. I couldn't get the stain out. It was really something. But the most involved stunt that went on, the um, room that we were all dressing in was a very, very long, narrow room. And it ran the entire depth of the auditorium. And it went for quite some way. And then there was a short staircase. And then there were more dressing room areas. We were all in a long row with a makeup table that ran the length of the room. And 
one night I went again after the show to get dressed to get to leave. And as I bent down to get my sneakers, water came pouring out at my face. It was such force. It was like a, a water main had broken and it was pouring just on me. And it turned out Scott Wise, Tony Award winner for Jerome Robbins Broadway was up in the room with me. He dressed at the other end of the room and he had gotten a long tube of clear plastic that ran the entire uh, that ran the entire length of the room and it had its first exit where i was getting dressed and uh, its entrance was up at his place which was all the way at the other end of the room he filled that tube with water and then put a cork in it and it was that way all through the show and when i reached down to get my sneakers he took the cork out he took the tube and went <laughs> And he blew into it, and all that water came pouring out at me. It was it was memorable. Um, but when you're in a long run, and, and at that point, at least, Guys and Dolls was the longest run I had ever done and really didn't anticipate ever doing another long run like that again. And you do tend to get a little um, bored. And rather than have it come out on stage, which would not be good, uh, it would generally manifest itself off stage with all sorts of shenanigans. Now, going back to Funny Thing, tell us about the times you got well, to the go. The first on. time I went on for Miles was quite an experience. Um, we were still in previews and we had not had a rehearsal. The, un the standbys had not had any rehearsal because they're busy putting the regular show up. But we would sit and watch the show. And we eventually got so bored watching the show while they were setting everything that we would adjourn ourselves to the lobby at the um, Martin Beck. And we'd run lines. We couldn't run the show. We hadn't been taught the choreography. Uh, we hadn't been given any direction. But we figured at least we would know the words. So we did that a bit. And one of our earliest previews, they came to me and they said, Chris Gronendahl is not feeling well, you're on tonight. And this is without rehearsal, without any staging rehearsal, choreography rehearsals. It turned out in addition to that, in addition to not having a costume and not having a wig and not having a helmet that I could, that would fit my head, uh, in addition to all of that, uh, when Chris Gronendahl was hired, they raised the key of Bring Me My Bride. And it was already sort of scraping the top of where I felt comfortable singing. And they had taken it up higher than that. And when I heard about that, I went to the musical director and I said, listen, I can't sing it in that key. And they said, don't worry, we have the original orchestration here. If you go on, you'll sing it with the original orchestration in the original key. So I didn't worry about it. So come this particular night, they had no costume for me. So they ripped a costume apart and put me in it and stapled with an office stapler. They stapled up the back of the costume to close it up. Um, I couldn't put the helmet on because the helmet didn't fit my head. So I had to carry the helmet. And as it turned out, just before I went on, they said, oh, by the way, we can't find the original orchestration. It's probably here somewhere, but you'll have to sing it in Chris's key. Then I found out that that was the first night Sondheim was, see, was seeing the show um, in its fully mounted form. So I was terrified. 
And, um, you know, it would have been difficult to say the least under normal circumstances the first time you go on. It was doubly difficult because they were so unprepared for my going on. And it was triply difficult because I knew the Sondheim was there and was going to make some judgments. I had someone out in the front watching Sondheim through the show because I wanted to know whether I was going to lose my job. And um, apparently at the curtain call, um, I was told that Sondheim uh, only applauded for me. And it was shortly after that, that Sondheim said, why don't you have him cover Pseudolus? He's funny. So that's when I picked up the Pseudolus cover, which I was not doing at the beginning of the show. But that first time going on was very frightening. When you go on as an understudy for the first time, it's really sort of like you're standing on railroad tracks and a train is coming by and it's not going to stop at the station. And you have to grab onto the train and get on without the train stopping. And either you get on the train successfully or it rips your arm out of your socket. And uh, I managed to get on the train successfully, but it was a very, very frightening experience. But when you go through enough of those kind of scary experiences on stage, you begin to realize there's, an, there's a theater expression called 11 o'clock always comes. And it basically means no matter how badly things are going, eventually the show will be over and you'll get to go home. So don't get too crazy about it. And so that, that sometimes can be a comfort. But as I told you earlier on, I really like rehearsing. I like feeling prepared. And in a situation like that, there was absolutely no preparation. There was just none. Before I go on to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Phantom, which I definitely want to talk about, one part of your career I've sort of been ignoring is that you've done a lot of shows on the road over the years. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us about touring with Anything Goes. <laughs> I will not rise to the bait. I will stay, I will stay gentlemanly. Uh, touring Anything Goes um, was very, very much like touring almost any show. Um, you're on a schedule. Basically, you play, <coughs> pardon me, a week or two at each location. And a pattern begins to evolve as to how you spend your time. Um, you generally arrive, you go to the theater, you do a mic check. They, there are certain things they want to make certain that is, are mic'd properly. Um, and uh, you do your opening night performance. Then after the opening night performance, there's usually some sort of a party or something that you go to. You sleep in the next morning and then you read the newspapers, usually the day after the opening night because uh, it takes them a while to get them in the, in the, into the newspapers. And with Anything Goes, it was a very interesting experience because the reviews were not all spectacular uh, for the second tour that I did. The first tour was quite excellent, but um, for various economic reasons, simply couldn't run. But once the reviews are in and so on, the rest of the week sort of falls into a pattern. You spend probably two days uh, sightseeing in whatever city you happen to be in. You'll spend one day at understudy rehearsal. You'll spend one day doing your laundry. And I always spent one day going to used book and record stores. And while I was on the road, particularly with Anything Goes, um, I would mail home two or three books that I would find, theater books that I would find. 
And from my point of view, I wasn't sending back that much because what's two books, three books, week after week after week, they accumulate. And eventually we had to get rid of, we had a piano in the apartment. We had to get rid of the apartment to make way for bookcases in order to accommodate the books that I had found. But the books that I found were very, very rare theater books and very, very interesting recordings. And um, on the road, you could find them and they would not be ridiculously expensive. So it was a wonderful opportunity to build um, a theater library. And obviously, um, if they were books that I found particularly interesting, I would tour with them, I would take them with me. Also, when we did the tours of Anything Goes, um, having a VCR on the road was a novelty. And I played the captain of the ship in Anything Goes, and I covered Sir Evelyn. And um, once a week or so, we would have video night up in my room, wherever we happened to be staying. And um, I would show them videos that I thought the people in the cast should uh, be aware of. And I eventually became known in the tour as Captain Video. And um, that's sort of the routine. And then, you know, you finish, you finish your last performance, you pack up your makeup, you pack up all of your stuff, you go back to the hotel, you pack up your clothes. The following morning, you go down, you meet the bus, you get on the bus and either you travel to the airport or you travel to the next city and you repeat the process over and over and over again. And one of the hardest things about touring like that is finding yourself, and it's inevitable that it happens, finding yourself wandering around the uh, sidewalks of the city and not knowing what city you're in. Because each week you're in a different city and it's very hard to keep track of. And so when you tour, uh, someone once suggested that it would be wise to take a few items, uh, personal items, that you could put in the room so that if you woke up in the middle of the night, you could look around and you may not know what city you're in, um, but you know that wherever it is you are is where you're supposed to be. Also at that time, um, we were still desperate to raise money for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. And um, once a month, I would produce a benefit uh, to raise money and um, people in the cast would volunteer their time and their talent and prepare numbers that could be performed. And we had a woman who was in the show who was a wonderful master of ceremonies, and she did that work on that. And what we would do, in anticipation of getting to a city, I would contact the city about a month before, say, we're coming to your city. We have a show. We need a piano. We need a follow spot and a stage. Other than that, we need nothing and we'll split the proceeds. The local AIDS organization can keep half, and we'll send half to the national organization, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And, and Broadway Cares gave us a list of um, organizations across the country that they thought would be amenable to this idea. And so that was another way that I kept busy when I was on the road, was producing those. And um, one way or another, the week goes by, <laughs> the week or two goes by, and then you're in your next city and you just move on and you just keep this up for as long as you're on the road. Being on the road is not a difficult job. Staying home, maintaining a house, that's the hard job. On the road, it's very irresponsible. You don't have to make your bed, you don't have to clean your room, you don't have to vacuum, you don't have to do anything. It's a very, very easy life. Once you've learned your show, it's a very, very easy life and a very, very enjoyable way to spend time. And I've done a lot of touring. You have, and another 
place you've done a lot of shows is Paper Mill Playhouse. What is it about that theater that keeps you coming back there? Well, I haven't been there in a long time. But during the period that I was there, it was a very steady source of work that was very close to New York City. And the big benefit of working at Paper Mill was that you could live at home, which sounds, it doesn't sound particularly thrilling, I suppose, to people. But when you spend so much time on the road, to be able to actually live at home is a real plus, and it makes a big difference in your life. And so Paper Mill became a very, very easy home to continue to work at. And I think I've done, I don't know, 18 or 20 shows at Paper Mill. And um, some of them were good, some of them were not so good, but um, it, it, it provided the opportunity of being able to stay home, which is unmatched. You've done a lot of shows in many places around the country. What do you think is the role or roles you've played the most times? I don't know. I suppose it might be like a three-way tie. Captain Hook, as I already mentioned before, um, Bezac in New Moon, which is bizarre. But, um, but there are two shows that kept coming back. Early in my career, it was Shenandoah. I did, the national, I did uh, an outdoor uh, Muni and uh, Starlight Two theaters, summer theaters, uh, did it the first time there with Christine Ebersole and Scott Bakula. We had a number of people in the show that were just starting out their careers. And then I did the national tour with John Raitt and John Cullum, and then I did stock productions. of I did a lot of Shenandoahs. And the other show is uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye, which is a role that I really enjoyed playing. And... Um, I'm afraid I'm aging out of it, but it is a wonderful role. And I, that, that's one that I would want to repeat as often as I possibly could. It's uh, got a lot of depth to it. Um, and it's a brilliantly put together show. It's um, one of the best. And certainly the role of Tevye is a spectacular role because it runs the entire range of comedy to tragedy. And very often the comedy and tragedy turn on a dime, which makes it very, very interesting to do. Uh, the first act is much lighter in tone than the second act, and it really challenges you to play. And when you're in a really good production of it, it can be a very thrilling experience. And I've done one particular production of it, uh, I don't know, three, four, a number of times. And while the venues may change and the size of the production may change, the sensitivity and the ethos of the production remains the same. And it's a very exciting thing to do. I know you have a story about a certain production where there was something that really made you not want to get into the bed right before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was one of those really good productions of Fiddler that I did. I was playing uh, Tevya opposite a woman, an older woman, who was playing Golda. And um, she had had a lot of theater experience. But uh, you never know when you find yourself in a position like that. And um, the show was designed in such a way that uh, before the Tevya's dream, where he concocts this uh, fantasy dream of his to enable um, his daughter to marry the tailor whom she loves. 
and it begins, you're in bed with Golda. It's the middle of the night, and he concocts a nightmare that he tells Golda. And you just come off from doing some scene, I don't recall offhand what scene it is, but you come off, you have just enough time to get into a nightshirt, and in the blackout, you get into the bed, you pull the covers over you, the lights come up, and you start doing the show. And this one particular night, this older woman was already in bed waiting for me in the dark. And I ran out on stage and lifted the covers. And as I was lifting the covers, I hear her go, uh-oh. And I said, what is it? And she said, diarrhea. And then the lights came up. I couldn't wait to get out of that bed. <laughs> it was, that was, that was a nightmare. <laughs> All right, now let's return to your Broadway career. The next show you did was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And... At a certain point during that show, you were playing Baron Bomberst regularly during Mark Kudish's vacation. So what was it like doing a leading role on Broadway eight times a week? <laughs> well, first of all, that show was the most fun I think I've ever had doing a Broadway show. My co-stars in my usual role was um, Lord Scrumptious, who runs the candy factory. And uh, there's a whistle, a, a kind of candy that's a whistle, and you blow it. And the whistle attracts all of the dogs in the neighborhood, and the dogs come running into the candy factory and attack me. Well, in order to do that, um, I had to become friends with eight, uh, an assortment of eight different dogs. And I'm a big dog lover. And that made doing that show a very exciting experience. Not to mention, he gave me the first extended opportunity. I had to work with Bill Verloni, who is the Broadway go-to guy when it comes to animals on stage. And I knew his wife, Dorothy Verloni, from those days at Darien Dinner Theater. She worked there. She comes from Connecticut, and she worked there. And we became very friendly there long before she met Bill. And then she met Bill. And during Chitty, I worked with Bill on working with the dogs because he kept saying the dogs have to love you in order to come and chase you. And so I spent overnights with the dogs. When I wasn't on stage, I would go down to their dressing room and I would hang out with them. And we, we really bonded very, very closely. And so working, working that show, I've, I found particularly special. And Bill would let me take home on our day off. We had like a day and a half off because of the way the schedule fell. I could take one dog home with me of my choice for that extended period of time so that we could bond privately, which I did repeatedly. I just had so much fun doing that show. And we had two spectacular people in the show, Chip Zine and uh, Jan Maxwell, late Jan Maxwell, incredibly talented woman. And working with the two of them, they really kept us on our toes and we had a wonderful time doing that show. And Mark left to do another show. And so I replaced him during his uh, leave of absence. And all of my scenes were with Jan Maxwell, who was an, abs was an absolute consummate professional, funny, talented, just marvelous. And to work with her was a dream. Um, it was one of the last Broadway shows she did. And I don't think I ever had quite so much fun working with somebody on stage. She was so creative and so giving and so generous. 
So the experience of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, the whole thing from first rehearsal to final performance was a year, which is not a terribly long time, but it's a show that I remember with such fondness. Um, it was just, it was a ter really, really terrific experience. And in that enormous theater where Harry Potter, you know, would be playing if Broadway were still open, um, the dressing rooms were spectacular. The backstage was spacious. It was a very, very pleasant experience. I really enjoyed it more than almost any Broadway show I can think of. Finally, I have to ask <coughs> No one could do a good interview with you without asking you about Phantom, which you did for nine years. How did you start? How did you audition? Um, well, obviously I was a replacement and I auditioned for the show and it was at a time when my um, career was sort of in stall. We weren't headed anywhere. And um, at the beginning of the week, I auditioned for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I got it, but it wasn't going to start rehearsing for a long time. And they called me to audition for Phantom. And I thought, well, now this isn't good because I really owe Chitty Chitty Bang Bang my appearance there. I, I didn't feel that I could say, no, sorry, I'm doing, I'm doing Phantom. So I figured, well, there's no way I'm ever going to wind up taking the show or getting the show. And as it turned out, I got it. And within that one week span, while I had had a very, very dry period, I wound up having two Broadway shows at the same time. And because Chitty was delayed, which often happens with a new show for one reason or another, I did Phantom for a while and then left it to do Chitty. And they kept my role for me. They kept it open for me. Uh, the same people who were managing Phantom were managing Chitty. And um, they apparently knew that Chitty was going to have a limited shelf life. And so they kept my role open. And once Chitty closed, I went back into the show again and stayed with uh, Phantom uh, until um, this past December. How did you prevent getting sick of it after doing it for so long? Backstage projects, incredibly important. Um, there was a, um, a sort of hobby that I had picked up from having a lot of time off stage. I started doing needlepoint because it's quiet. Um, it doesn't require a tremendous amount of concentration and it keeps your hands busy. And while you're doing your needlepoint, you can hear all sorts of chat. You hear everything that everybody's talking about. And you don't feel that you have to participate if you don't want to. And so if talk starts turning nasty, you can just pretend you didn't hear it. And so uh, I, a lot of needlepoint. And um, when that finished, as you well know, one of my interests is preserving the history of the musical theater in audio and video. And I had a tremendous amount of video on tape, VHS tapes, some of which I had donated to PBS when they did a documentary on Jerry Herman. And um, when I brought the videos to the uh, PBS station for them to use for the Jerry Herman show, the technician looked at the videotapes and said, um, have you transferred these to digital yet? 
And I said, no. And I said, you better hurry. Uh, they were concerned that the videotapes weren't going to hold up. Um, and so I set up a video lab backstage and I started doing transferring all of the videos that we had to digital. And that process took a number of years because it was a lot of video material. But I managed to transfer it all and to index it and all the rest of that. And um, that kept me busy backstage. It's you adopt a number of um, activities backstage to keep you occupied because it's a, you spend a long time backstage and you can't keep listening to the show over and over and over and over again. You simply can't. It becomes um, like a like a kind of endless noise backstage, you know, like like somebody's running a vacuum cleaner. And it, not to liken the score to, you know, that kind of noise, but it's just how often can you listen to it? When people ask me, are you bored? Uh, don't you love doing Phantom of the Opera? Is that music? And I say, yes, it's beautiful. What's the most beautiful piece of music you can think of? Beethoven's Ninth? Let's say it's Beethoven's Ninth. And you listen to it once and you think it's thrilling. It's magnificent. I say, fine, now listen to it again. Okay, so listen to it again. I said, do you still like it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very nice. Listen to it three times. Okay, I'll listen to it three times and listen to it three times. Now, listen to it eight times a week for nine years. Tell me what you think of Beethoven's Ninth. It's, um, you have to steel yourself against that level of boredom so that you can remain creative on stage and you can remain alive while you're on stage. And um, one of the stage managers at Phantom once said, and I think it's a very high compliment, uh, shook his head and said, you know, you never do the show the same way twice. And what that meant was, it's not that I'm wandering all over the stage or I'm making up words or anything like that, but it's sort of like a little mental game that you play with yourself. The director lays out the um, territory that is your part. And so it's almost as if a wire fence perimeter has gone around your role and you have to stay within that perimeter. But within that perimeter, there's a lot of room. And if you're creative enough, and if you want to enough, there's no need to repeat yourself over and over and over again. And you can find avenues that will allow you to um, vary your performance to such an extent that you remain mentally alive, but you don't become ludicrous on stage. And that's, to me, the challenge of a long run. And it, it is a challenge. And not everybody can rise to that challenge, but I rather enjoyed it. To wrap up our interview, I have two questions for you. First, mm -hmm. what was it that made you finally decide to leave Phantom? And second, after the quarantine, would you ever consider going back to either Phantom or doing another show? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, I would do another show, very definitely. I don't feel that it's really terribly necessary for me to go back to Phantom. I've already done it quite a lot. But... Um, I would, I would enjoy doing more theater work, um, but um, our finances are such that I don't feel that I have to jump at any, any job in order to keep busy. So it would have to be something that I really wanted to do. Uh, what was the first part of your question? I'm afraid I forgot. Oh, the first part of my question was why you decided to leave Phantom and Oh, Well, 
I had done it for a long time. And um, while there is a certain challenge in trying to continue to do a show repeatedly, um, I think I had reached the point where I really felt that um, it was time to move on. And um, fortunately, uh, Actors' Equity, um, there, is, there is a pension plan at Actors' Equity. And if you work frequently enough, um, it's a very good pension plan. And I knew that if I left Phantom, that uh, I would not have to worry about money, that my future was secure. And um, if I didn't need to continue doing Phantom, maybe it was time to move on. And I do note, I left Phantom um, around New Year's and Broadway closed down about a month and a half later. So I like to think that Broadway couldn't manage without me. That could be. Ken, thank you for joining us today. It's been great to have such a consummate performer with so many stories to share <laughs> with me and our listeners. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. And remember to tune in again on Monday when we have Josh Ellis joining us. Josh is a renowned Broadway press agent who's represented such shows as 42nd Street, Rags, Into the Woods, Live Spirit, Loot, Big River, and The King and I, among others. He also helped create the infamous Broadway is Finally Holding Hands Again ad with David Merrick. He has also served as director of press and marketing at the Roundabout Theater Company, La, jo La Jolla Playhouse, and has his own solo show, Call My Publicist, and is an ordained interfaith minister. Make sure to listen, and thank you for listening today. <laughs>